To defend Israel, you need the facts. That's why Kufi is launching a brand new online news and analysis show hosted by Kasim Hafiz called Kufi Weekly. Tune in on YouTube every Thursday to get the rundown on the latest events related to Israel and the Middle East. Subscribe to Kufi's YouTube channel, Official Kufi, to never miss an episode. And visit www.kufi.org slash Weekly. Anti-Semitism is everyone's problem. It's not just a Jewish problem. Anytime there is prejudice or stereotype or singling out of a group based on their ethnic or religious identity, there's something very wrong here. You're looking at the unraveling of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which dominated the landscape for many years. That conflict is now receding. For Zion's sake, we must not be silent. Hello and welcome to Kufi's Middle East Briefing. I'm one of your hosts, Karina, and um, I'm here I, with... Oh, we nearly yeah, had it yeah. perfect there. And I'm the other one, <laughs> Kasim. Yes, the other one, the OG one. Um, well, we have a great episode today, I think. We do. I think so too. We have a great guest. Uh, we will be talking about 9-11, of course, because we just passed the 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So some yeah. personal stories, some um, inspiring words. It's going to be good. It is. And I don't really have much more to add, so let's head straight over to the news. Hello and welcome back uh, to the news. Yeah. Well, I, I said it would be the news. Um, so, it's been an sort interesting Sort of a quiet... Week. Yeah, they're saying no news is good news, so maybe on it's that premise. Yeah, Very positive. There we go. Um, other not so positive, um, there was a prison break in Israel. Uh, six mm-hmm. terrorists, I believe, of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade escaped. Um, and what's really kind of troubling about this, I mean, firstly, they escaped, which is awful. First, yes. Uh, it's been um, the show of support, one, from the Palestinian Authority, and two, there have been protests in parts of the West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem supporting these escapees, who are all you know, convicted terrorists. So that's right. uh, troubling. And you know, Israeli security forces believe they're going to try and either head to Janine uh, refugee camp or Jordan. So hopefully they are caught before that and before they're able to be involved in any more terror. Right. Yeah, it kind of goes to show that it is really a a culture of indoctrinated hatred that needs to be reversed before certain certain things can be reached. Right, but. and yeah, it's it's sad that terrorists are being celebrated as heroes. I mean, it, right. it's a sad reflection on society, and like we always say, you know, it's it's this comes from the leadership, the ones who control the propaganda, the propaganda that comes out, the education system, all of it, uh, they are completely responsible. And it's sad. Right. Yes. And meanwhile, um, we've seen Israel and uh, Hamas kind of going back and forth, exchanging fire. Um, Israel has, or the IDF has retaliated a couple times to incendiary balloon attacks. Um, recently, I think Israel's leadership said that they would be taking a harder line towards some of these attacks. Um and treating them for what they are, which are terrorist attacks. And so they've hit a couple terrorist targets and, um, yeah, riots continue. And it's just kind of kind of underreported too. I've not really seen that in a lot of the, the mainstream media. It's true, but it is in the daily briefing. So there's a plug for that. If you don't receive the daily briefing from Kufi, which is a daily email, headlines in it, news stories, you should. Indeed. Um, I second that. Um, (laughs) I I guess uh, the the final part of news I wanted to touch on is, of course, Afghanistan. It's still being discussed. And there's been a a lot of discussion about Al-Qaeda's role in the future, Mm -hmm. the the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Um, Right now, there's not been a ton said. Uh, The Afghan... Yeah, I can't not even yet. The Taliban are in the process of forming their own their foot their government, an all male government. Um hey. shockingly. Um and Al Qaeda have right. been it's not progressive. 
Yeah, like who knew? Um, uh. Interestingly, uh, the Taliban spokesman a few days ago said that the Taliban were open to r relations with every country, including the United States, but they have no desire to have any relations with the state of Israel, naturally. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so, yeah, uh, expected. But no, it's Al-Qaeda have been celebrating the Taliban's victory and the U.S. withdrawal, and experts believe that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban still have close links and, and have maintained those close links. But, you know, we'll see what happens moving forward. Me personally, I believe that Al-Qaeda will be emboldened by this and reestablish mm -hmm. their base in Afghanistan, which will only, it, it bodes ill for the United States and our allies because it just, it, it gives another safe haven to terrorists. Right. Yeah, kind of a waiting game, but not very high hopes there, unfortunately. Right. It's unfortunate, but that is the reality. And, and I... If you watch the Kufai Weekly uh, from last week, uh, I said it then, look, it's so important that we remember what happened on 9-11, not only from the perspective of, you know, this tragedy, but also why it happened, you know, the, mm -hmm. the fanatical motivations behind it, and that those motivations and those ideologies still exist and thrive today. You know, it's right. only gotten worse. You have al-Qaeda, but you also have ISIS and you also have the Iranian regime. So it's very important that we're aware of those threats and are speaking out against them because we mm -hmm. have a responsibility to make sure that we are educated and also we are protecting our citizens and allies. Right. Couldn't okay. agree more. Okay. Well, we are going to go to a quick promo. New to Christians United for Israel and want to learn more about who we are and how you can get involved? Find out how you can stand with Israel and the Jewish people in your church, community, or school and fight back against anti-Semitism by visiting www.kufi.org. All right. Well, um, we are going to go to our interview after this that we had with Joe. And I think it's super good, super interesting. It kind of calls attention to 9-11 and what lessons are, um, you know, remain for, for us even now, 20 years later. And um, you have a personal connection with him, Kasim. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little about that. So I met Joe at a Israel-related conference. Shock, you know, <laughs> shockingly. Um, we do on uh, weekends. Yeah, you know, and he spoke and he was very good, um, as you guys will see. And we kind of just hit it off. I was like, this guy's cool. I want to be his friend. <laughs> <laughs> and we we spoke and like we stayed in touch. And then so this would have been around about, I want to say like 2015. And okay. then last year, um, I was preparing to do a Go Rock event, as you know, I do all the time. Yeah. Uh and it was a 9-11 event. It was a memorialized 9-11. And part of the event was that, you you know, you carry someone's story with you. So it, there's a personal connection. So I went on a website which has the names of all the victims of 9-11. And mm -hmm. I kind of randomized it, hit the random button to, to pick somebody. And it gave me a name, uh, Tamor Khan. And I was like, huh, that sounds familiar. Also, like, you know, it's, it's a very South Asian name. Mm -hmm. I'm only from Pakistan, so that appealed. Mm -hmm. And then I was, like, racking my brain trying to think, where have I heard this? Could you think that maybe you've read it in a book or you've seen it in a documentary? But I remember Joe had posted in the past about his friend who was killed uh, on 9-11. So I reached out to him pretty much almost with this, this is, you know, I don't think this is right, but just checking. You know, mm -hmm. what was your friend's name? And it was the same person. His friend was Tamor Khan. Mm -hmm. So we got into okay. a conversation and it was just, it was wild that, of you know, the, the almost 3,000 people who died on that day, this was the name that was randomly selected. And, you mm -hmm. know, I got a, a memorial bracelet with his name on it. And, and Joe also has one. And Joe still is very close with Tamor's family. And he discusses that. But it, it really was, for both of us, it was it was kind of a a very powerful sign that you know that look I don't believe in coincidence. Everything happens right. for a reason. I believe there is divine purpose for everything. 
and that was there was something just very powerful about that it just kind of really strengthened out bond as friends and also like having this kind of shared uh person that you know who was a personal friend of joe and somebody who i then would learn a lot about and joe shared personal stories about which was just extremely powerful and it just you know it was it's pretty special yeah that is thanks for sharing that so then that's how you met joe and how we ended up having him here on the podcast right and and you know, like we'll discuss, he does incredible things in the Jewish community and right. he has been active in the Israel field for a long time. And I just thought he's a super cool guy and he's doing some very, you know, some awesome things. And oh, yeah, he's just a really great guy to talk to. So well, like, let's have him on the podcast. So let's get into it. Okay, so we are joined today by a very special guest. And short of doing a long intro, I'm simply going to say I've met Joe a couple of times. He is somebody I would classify as a warrior poet. That is the best way I can describe Joe. Nice. I love that. It's a great description. Uh, So welcome to the Kufi Middle East Briefing, Joe. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you. It's going great. Uh, You know, thanks to God, man. I'm here. I'm here on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And when we've talked about doing this for a while, I could not think of a better day to do it than a, a very spiritual and uh, awesome day like today. So glad to be here. It, it worked out. Uh, so I'm going to jump straight into the questions and we will go cool. from there. Cool. So look, before we we talk about some of the other issues I want to discuss with you, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about 9-11. So yeah. this is going to be released uh, two or three days after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You're uh, a New Yorker, spent a lot of time in New York. It's yeah. been 20 years. And 9-11 is something which, in, in the strangest way, connected us, like completely kind of yeah. left field many years later. So can you tell us where you chills. were? I have chills already. Can you, it's, can you tell us where you were and yeah. the impact that had on your life? Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing it up. I think it's essential that we continually talk about this. And we don't talk about it just in the way of how you know, horrible of a day it was. I think we should also talk about it, you know, what we learned from it and the great things that come from it. And I think number one is, you know, I want to tell you quickly, you know, where it was that day because I was right in it. Um, but what's amazing is that the connection that you and I have from that day through my best friend that I lost, Ty Moore Khan. Uh, we'll get to that story, but that's just, you know, too many ways that show me that there's just, you know, greater power above and connecting people here today. I really live by that. And I didn't. I didn't grow up like that. So um, just quickly, I'm a grandchild of four Holocaust survivors. I'm a first generation American. I grew up just totally like assimilated. You know, I, you know, everything was material. How rich can you get? What job are you going to get? Everything, all that. And um, a lot of my friends were working in Wall Street. They were working in finance. And my best friend, Ty Morcon, was working at a place called Car Futures. Uh, that is the floor below Canner Fitzgerald. And he asked me a number of times, come work for him. Come work for me, dude. You'd be amazing at this. You got energy. You got passion. You're smart. I'm like, I don't know anything about finance. I'm not really driven so much by money. At that time, I was, I was in the film business. I was okay. considering myself an artist, right? <laughs> and um, so I've been to his office a number of times and everything. That day... About 8.59 in the morning, I get a, a – my my phone was ringing, uh, and it was the time when we used to have answering machines. And my best friend, who uh, was also best friends with Ty Moore, was yelling in the phone, Joe, Joe, wake up, because you know, I was in New York City. I was out till 4 in the morning the night before. I wake up. I said, what, what are you doing? He said, turn on the TV. Turned on the TV. Every channel had the burning towers or the Tower One was burning. And he just said one word to me. He said, Tie more. And I said, Oh my God. I said, Have you called him? He's like, Yeah, I'm trying him. I'm like, All right, I'll try him too. That turned into, long story short, an entire frantic, like, like my, you know, awareness and anxiety level shot to like 13, not even 10, because Tie more was the, Soul, let's say, man of the family. There's no father in his family. He has a sister 
and he has a mother, and he's extremely close to them both. He was the man of the family. And him being a Pakistani born and growing up here in New York, you know, he was the father figure. And right away, I spoke to them, and they were panicked. They could not get into the city. So at that point, they asked me, Joey, please do anything you can. And I'll tell you, I lived on 83rd and 1st Avenue. <sighs> Ground zero is, let's just put it this way, it's about 150 blocks away. I got out of my apartment and I ran. And mm -hmm. everyone is walking uptown. I'm talking about a sea of people. And I'm running against them. People coming out with white soot on their heads, you know, uh, coughing, um, sirens going to February. The smell, the smell is something I'll never forget. It was the most horrible electric wire smell. And uh, that was the start of my journey of, of the next 72 hours that I didn't sleep. Hmm. Wow. wow. That's, yeah, that's, it, it's, yeah, I, uh, it's speech. It's just thinking about it now. I mean, you know, we, we've all seen the images and I think there's been a one, we're almost desensitized to it and we look at it as a, a part of history. I'm reading, um, Fallen Rise, the story of 9-11 and the, the writer of that focuses on the human stories and that, you know, on, for people like Taimo's family, 9-11 never ended. You know, every single day they're remembered of that loss. So it's it's really powerful to hear that kind of personal narrative and, and what you were doing on that day. Because I do, I look, I the field we work in. You know, we we talk about people have forgotten the Second World War, and people have forgotten the Holocaust. This is twenty years ago, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a memory from a lot of people, which it, it's sad and scary, especially with what's happening, you know, geopolitically at the moment. Yeah, it's incredible to see just how one generation, the feeling kind of starts to dissipate, not with the people who live through it at all. I mean, I'm with his mother and sister. I live five minutes away from his sister. She's basically my sister now. We yeah. fight like brother and sister too. That's how close we are. Um, but when you what you said was so true. It's still 9-11 every day. His mother cannot get over it at all his sister still has married has two beautiful kids but you see the sadness in their eyes it's and look and especially in this past year of covid you know we've lost a lot of people unfortunately but when something you know even like covid but something like an accident car accident or an untimely death and something that's so vicious volatile it it, it leaves a really hardened scar and a lot of scar tissue emotionally um, I, uh, I have not gotten over it, but the, what I've done is I have to use what I feel in everything I do. And that's, that's basically why I do all the different things, you know, that I do today because too much emotion bottled up inside, um, just doesn't lead to anything truly productive. Whether you share it with one person, you have to share whatever you're feeling, especially a, a traumatic incident like this. Yeah. Right. That's so true. Well, from my perspective, you know, I was five uh, during 9-11. I'm 25. Huh. So for me, and I know that we have a good bit of younger listeners, um, I think that hearing those personal stories is really impactful to kind of bring us to that moment that we don't maybe have a recollection of. Yeah. And so you like, you know, there are a lot of lessons and things we can take away from it. For my generation and, you know, even for people who maybe were there but have forgotten, like, Kasim said, what lessons do you think we can take from it? Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you that day. I'm going to give you my personal story. I mean, that's all I can do. I think that's what's of true value. I mean, there's so many amazing mm -hmm. stories, but all right. My story was that day I was running down there and then I got down there and uh, I mean, I was able to sneak through the police because it was just disarray. They were trying to set up a perimeter on 14th street. If you know, New York city, 14th street is like the start to downtown, um, and they, they couldn't hold the line at all. And they didn't really care. They were just trying their best. And I got that. Uh, I made it all the way down there. And I was standing around a lot of cops and a lot of construction workers. Uh, and the third building was smoking heavily. And I, you know, we were trying to figure, do we go around? Do we go straight? What do we do? Do we get out of here? And then all of a sudden, just a lot of people started yelling, run, run, on the top of the lungs. And 
was about 40 or 50 people. We all started running and I was about three blocks away, literally like running away from the smoke plumes catching up like behind me, scared me to, you know, what, you know, you wouldn't believe. Um, But I want to, I want to just fast forward somewhere in like the next couple of days. (sighs) Sorry, it's a little emotional for me, but um. I remember walking around 34th Street and 8th Avenue, and I was just crying. I was just walking around the city crying, trying to understand what this was. I wasn't involved in you know, the, the pro-Israel world like I am now at all. I was so far removed from it. But I was wondering who and why would someone do this in any which way? I don't believe in, in, in anger to the point of hurting anyone ever. And this was devastating. And I'm just wandering, uh, wandering along, crying, not knowing where I'm really going. And someone just came over to me, walking towards me, and just hugged me. Hmm. Complete stranger. And I cried like I haven't cried before into their shoulders and hugged them for maybe a good minute. And, th- and that was it. And then just throughout the next couple of days and weeks and year or more, people were just so kind to each other. Every New York stranger whether it's a homeless guy or, you know, some artistic fancy, fancy pants woman. Everyone, you could see it in their eyes as compassion, um, this empathy. And it was really a beautiful thing. And what I heard and felt from people around the country and the world, it was really just the most beautiful thing. So unfortunately, tragedy can bring people together to understand, I think, what's truly valuable in life. And it's our experience with each other our companionship and our care for one another Mm, that's good all right it's i've heard friends reference that quite a bit when they say remember who we were the day after 9 11 um Mm. and you know it is sad that a tragedy brings us together like this um i just wanted to quickly touch back on like the weird connection we have because of 9 11 so if you remember it, it was a year ago uh, I had started doing these go ruck endurance events because that's what you do. Um, and they did one for nine 11, you know, they did one for nine 11. And for me, my background and everything, it was kind of, I need to do this. Like, this is something I need to do, but I didn't want to just go through the motions. I wanted to make it meaningful. So I searched, I, I didn't even search. I went on a website and you kind of click a button and it would give you a random name and a random story. And that's what you kind of carry with you. So I did that and Tamil's name came up and I felt that you had mentioned it on Facebook before. I was like, I'm sure. But I was like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. So I messaged you and I, I think I even said in my message, went, look, this is going to sound really weird. And if this is wrong, my apologies. And it was, t- and it's literally, it's, I just have it unpacking for this event in DC and I have, yeah, I, I oh. ordered one of those bands and, it, it it was crazy to me, like it's, that, you know, of the thousands of names, that was the name that kind of generated, and and that's the story. That's the story I'll be carrying with me this weekend in DC when I do the events again. It's, it is the most incredible thing in my entire life. I have one other experience that just you know blows my mind. That I I don't understand it, and it also makes me feel like you know, the greatest, you know, warmth and love from, you know, God and people who pass on. It was this story, Kasim. It's just insane. It gives such hope and, and just uh, to you know, my family. I call them my family, Ty Moore's yeah. family. Gives such hope and feeling. And we still talk about it every time together. I wear this bracelet so every single day, all the time. Yeah. And just that fact, you know, it, it shows, you know, your history, your connection and, randomly getting you know his name of all people and he's of right. pakistani descent i'm like it just clearly shows i to me i look at trying to interpret messages that are put in front of me you know um in the world and i think this clearly shows that a you're on the right path b i'm on the right path and c we're on this path together and right. it's just it's just incredible um i i can't i still can't believe it uh, and it gives me such smiles every time i think about it. and I, I look at this you know it's great yeah it's it really it's amazing and it's like i said i'm going to be doing some events this weekend to, to mark 9-11 the 20th anniversary and you know i, I packed the bracelet in my rug so timeline and, and the story that you shared like i'll be reading that out again so 
you know, it's he is remembered and it's it's important. So it's it's just even today, like it's just still like it's just mind boggling. You know, I I don't believe in coincidence of that nature. You know, it's just so specific. It's it's wild. Yeah, yeah. God, thanks. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. But what's incredible, it's 20 years. I remember, you know, the weeks after, it was all a blur to me um, because my job was to actually, for the family, was to go to each and every hospital to try and locate him because there were so many rumors that day of people being injured. And right. you know, another quick story of that day, like cell phones weren't working. I'm sure you've heard that. But there was one major hospital down in downtown Manhattan, and I went right there after the third building fell hoping to get some information, be the family's representative. And the freakiest thing was that when I got there, all the doctors and nurses were lined up in front, like over a hundred or so with stretchers, gurneys, wheelchairs. Uh, The police were there. Really Giuliani, who the mayor at that time was there. The freakiest thing was no one was coming in. Mm. It was so silent and it was so scary that that's when we realized this is catastrophic to another degree. And then I went to the Red Cross, uh, the headquarters for the Red Cross, just giving names. And then the next day, like, you know, Timor's mom had such hope and faith that he wasn't dead yet, that we went to, uh, they called like a press conference of families. It's so disorganized, but they tried to do what they could at this place called the Armory in, in Midtown Manhattan. And it was a zoo of reporters from all over the world. And me and a bunch of my friends were all handing out flyers with Time Lord's picture and his name and a telephone number, hoping someone may hear him or see it. And then everyone was doing that. And it became this crazy marketplace of trying to find people and reconnect with them. And oh, I'll never forget that. I'll never, I'll never forget a lot of things. But um, it's all about uh, taking what... Have, you've experienced and you know making it better you know making the world a better place from the experiences you have today so that kind of segues nicely to the next question i had uh, and it's switching gears a little so you talked about your your grandparents were holocaust survivors and uh, i read in your bio correct me if i'm wrong your parents were born and raised in a displaced persons camp correct. so f- from the experiences that they had what sort of impact did that leave on you? And, you know, how, how has that impacted what you do today? Yeah, um, great question. So my, par- my grandparents, all four of them survived either concentration camps, death camps, a prison or a prisoner of war camp, all through Germany, Poland, and even Russia. Um, my grandparents were all like sole survivors of their families, which they some of them had 12 or 13 brothers or sisters. And uh, it, it's a miracle a, that they all survived. OK, then uh, two of them ended up uh, being liberated from Bergen-Belsen, which is a concentration camp in Germany. And then that became the large one of the largest displaced persons camps for people who didn't have homes because my grandparents went back to their homes in Poland and their neighbors took their houses, chased them out with knives or guns and said, this is my house now, Jew, get out of here. So mm, they couldn't say it. Yeah. Oh, just interject, so I think that's a really important thing you just mentioned, because that's something that doesn't get told. People look at it that the Holocaust happened, the council liberated and everyone went home. And that's right. not exactly what right. happened. Right. Not at all. Not at all. There was the saddest thing to me, if you ask me, what's the saddest thing you can think of? It's the people who died within 24 hours after being liberated because they were so starved, they ate food too fast and ruptured their stomach or intestines. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. Okay. Then we came to search for loved ones and look, no internet. There was nothing. There was just a post on a board at camp saying, I know this person is alive. This is the last place I saw them. But then people ventured back to their hometowns to find their families, maybe even, you know, move back into their homes. Not so easy. The Poles, the Polish people, and I'm not going to stereotype everyone because that's the right thing to do. But a majority of people there knew what was going on during the war. They allowed it to happen or they were just silent, silent in the happenings of it. Uh, And then a lot of people said, get out of here. This isn't your home anymore. So then. Back to the displaced persons camp in Bergen-Belsen, that was liberated by the British. So the British Army uh, took care of people, gave them food, gave them you know doctor, medical help. 
the Americans did for a number of others. But in Bergen-Belsen, um, man, uh, my 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 other grandparents uh, ended up there because it was a very well-known place to go. They give you food, shelter, clothing, and everything. And then that's where uh, they got married. Both sets of grandparents got married. And then within a year to a year and a half, they had my parents. And it's crazy. We have a picture. Uh, I think it's a, it's in my bio that I sent you, Kasim, uh, of this like Shabbat dinner or just a dinner, you know, 40 families or something. And you see my mother standing there as like a, a one-year-old next to my dad, who's a two-year-old. Both families knew each other, met there, moved oh. all the way around the world. And then oh. about 18 years later, they met up and my dad proposed to my mom after 30 days. That's so sweet. Oh, that's awesome. So there's a love story in all of this. It's it. So I think of it as absolutely amazing and a miracle that I'm alive. And mm-hmm. growing up, I was you know first generation American. My parents didn't talk much about. I didn't know about the Holocaust really until I was a teenager. But when I was like, I remember in fourth or fifth grade, someone asked me, you know, uh, about my family history, and I said. Uh, my family has a very special history. I think they were part of the Holocaust. I didn't know what that meant, but mm-hmm. I was at least aware of something about it. Now, growing up, I had zero cousins. I had no cousins at all. My first cousin that I had, I was seven years old, uh, and she was born to a, a religious family. That, that part of my family, which in Poland, we were really the Orthodox, black hat, black beard, and I'm not at all like that. Um and I didn't get to, I didn't really know them because they wanted to bring them up. His, her family wanted to bring her up and their kids religious and I wasn't. Um, so how did that affect me? I'd say it didn't because I was really into sports. I was really into school. I was into having a good time. And then mm-hmm. as my identity evolved, uh, really, I would say, you know, your junior year, senior year of high school, you start having these questions about identity and, you know, interview someone for something cool. And I interviewed my grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, who was put into a Polish prison, beat every day for six months. She was tough. Whoa. You think, mm-hmm. oh, she was tough. And this doctor there felt so bad for her that she was about to die. She was 16 years old. He said, look, I'm going to give you a chance to get out of here. What did he do? He sent her to Auschwitz, the worst death camp in the world. But that was her chance, her only chance. Otherwise, she was going to die there. She ends up becoming a cook in in the camp, all right, for German officers. And she would steal potatoes and potato peels, mostly potato peels, and fed her and her cousin. And basically, that's how she survived there. Uh, and then as I started learning these stories in college, when I got to be around a lot, a more diverse group of people, I, mean, I live in Long Island, it was probably like 50, 60% Jewish, 40% Italian, Irish, Catholic, Latino, uh, African-American. Um, I'm, go- I'm so glad I had exposure to that. But when I got to college, I realized how big of a minority I am. That made me say, I need to understand my history a little bit better. And that's when I connected a lot to the Holocaust. But I didn't like learning about how we were considered or perceived as weak. I found out later there were a lot of Jews who fought, but I understand the, the, the odds against fighting, what that meant. But I did everything I could to, to become this strong Jew, to embody, you know, or to combat everything that I learned about uh, as a late teenager about uh, the Jewish people. Mm. Well, that kind of brings us, I think, to an important part of what you do. And that's, you know, you work now in the pro-Israel field. Um, So how did you get there? How did you get to starting nonprofits? Probably more than uh, Kasim and I could count. Um, (laughs) And uh, what what kind of fueled that? What's the goal for you? Well, you you just said the key word, fuel. Okay, Mm. so right after 9-11, me and another guy that knew each other basically from the nightclub business in New York City. He was a promoter. I was the doorman, you know, the guy with the clipboard who lets people in. Or like yeah. But I was like the nicest doorman of New York. I'm telling you. I'm so, I'm so serious. I was the nicest guy in the world to some people. Uh, so so we, um, he, his name is John Lowe. And, you know, he called me literally a day after 9-11. And he said, meet me in my office on Monday at seven o'clock and bring one person. I said, okay. I said, okay. Hung up the phone. That's it. That's what started 
the organization called Fuel for Truth. And mm-hmm. that organization focused on teaching, let's say secular, or just, you know, people who weren't really into, you know, history, or they really weren't into religion. They're kind of finding their way, which is unfortunately the majority of people in this country. And we decided to teach them the basic facts about Israel and the Middle East, why they should care about Israel and their Jewish history and ancestry and all of our shared history. We even t- you know, teach the history of Christianity, Islam, but we do with a focus on who we are in our identity as Jewish people. But then the unique thing of what we did differently was we would also teach the skills you need to actually talk about this with friends. Because if you learn something and you don't share it, that's great. You just filled your capsule in your head, you're a jarhead, right? The Marines, you're a jarhead. We're not about that. We're about evangelizing, about talking about it, sharing it. And that was a, you know, a forte of mine. I was a communications major at Syracuse. And, uh, you know, we came up with just ways to communicate it, to really have a dialogue rather than debate. And then we would teach people who moved up like really well, great dialoguers, we would teach them, now you can debate. But why get into a debate with someone if you yourself don't even know the basic facts? So True. that was the start. Uh, and I was in charge of the campus program. Now, this is 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. There was no BDS movement. Why were we going to colleges? Because we knew what was happening on college campuses with professors that were clearly anti-Israel. They were silencing kids in classrooms. It was completely unfair. And we started to follow this path and started going to colleges. And what we would do is we did what we knew best. We'd put together parties. We would get kids (laughs) together. Instead of dragging kids to a place they don't want to go, well, where do you all hang out? Okay, great. We're going to talk to the owners of that bar or location. And we're going to say, between these hours, you're pretty much empty. We're going to bring in about two, 300 people, and we're going to stop for about 15 minutes, and I'm going to stand up on the bar, and I'm going to tell people basic facts about Israel. And it was really uh, risky in some ways, but that's how we knew how to get their attention. And I fell in love with doing that. It was the crazy that was so scared, but I fell in love with it because people said to me, you know, I learned more listening to you in 10 minutes than I did listening to my rabbi for 10 years. Parents, And I said, here's something interesting. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an expert, but I know how to kind of, you know, scratch that surface to just get in that first layer skin. And then with Fuel for Truth, we have this uh, motto. It's called the messenger is more, the messenger is more important than the message. At Hmm. first, it's all about who's going to deliver the message, get them excited, interested. Then, hey, let me introduce you to these experts or let me share with you a book. Let me do, you know. It's all about that first initial thing. So oh, that was uh, fuel for why we put team in front of everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's really like, he's a perfect example to yeah, that, that service. Yes. Yeah. You need that. So that was fuel for truth. And I went in full time. I gave up my career in the film business. I was working on the production staff of different films and commercials. I was one of the youngest producers in New York City for a commercial production agency doing really cool jobs. But I really found I found my purpose. I really did. And it meant a lot. And there were so many obstacles. I can't begin to tell you. I'd love to tell you, you know, all of them, but just, you know, me connecting to wanting to do this, committing to doing it raising money. I never raised money before speaking in front of kids, adults about Israel. What the heck? But Mm -hmm. if you have a drive, you find a way. And I ran that organization full-time for seven years and I loved it. And it's still going on. It's now in five different cities, uh, training people in, uh, in what's our called our trademark, you know, 10 week, uh, membership bootcamp program. And then uh, I went on to work. I said, I want to go work for the best. And I think there's so many that are the best, but I wanted to go work for APAC. Uh, APAC is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. We ensure that Congress supports Israel regardless of who's in office, bipartisan way. And a funny story, I have Kufi to thank for this. I don't think anyone knows. Yes. You ready for this? I'll never forget it. I remember the pivotal moments in my life. But there are so many great things that God have happened to me. I, I don't remember them all. Um, but the pivotal moment with Kufi and APAC and me was Pastor Hagee 
was speaking at Apex Policy Conference in 2006. And I begrudgingly went there. I'm a total like anti-establishment kind of guy. You know, I like creating small guerrilla type organizations. (laughs) Fuel for Truth was like, yeah, power to the, you know, I don't know, whatever, power to the people (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) And Pastor Hagee was the keynote speaker at the final dinner. And I never heard anyone speak like this. I never heard anyone speak with such passion, with tenor, with motivation that I'm not kidding you. I went like this. I turned to my left. I turned to my right. And I saw young people standing on chairs, clapping with applause and excitement. The crowd did not stop clapping for like five minutes. And I said, if this organization has a person like this, they get it. They know Mm -hmm. what's important. I want to be part of them one day. And then that one day came to be part of APAC. Um, that's, uh, I'm just going to stop right there because I know I'm telling stories too long right now. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I mean, APAC do incredible work and are so pivotal in the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's an incredible organization. Like, there's no... I'll be dead honest with you, and I'm not here so much to speak about APAC, but I can talk a little bit. We cannot do our job without you, without KUFI. We would be nowhere, okay? It's not just about one organization. It's about a movement, and a movement you wear the same jersey all around, but maybe we huddle in different little divisions and teams like, you know, the NFC East or, you know, the NHL, you know, West. We all may have different divisions, but we all need it together. And KUFI has been there. I've seen more pro-Israel activity from the members of KUFI than I've seen in any organization, even more than APAC. We all have our different roles. We man them well. Like, you know, the armed forces have multiple divisions. Well, I think KUFI are like the Marines or the Army. You know, they're, they're bad. Oh, we appreciate good. that. <laughs> we appreciate that. So, so two things. One, um, so I've heard you speak. Uh, and you're awesome. And I was describing, somebody was asking me, oh, who are you interviewing this week? And I don't know if this, this may offend you, so I apologize in advance. I was like, he's like a Jewish Dave Goggins. Like, that, that's kind of how I see you. <laughs> David Goggins, I'll take it. That, that was my description. I like it. Um, <laughs> so so the, this May, we saw the conflict, the Hamas firing rockets at Israel. And for a lot of people, it was one a wake up to wake up call and two a what the heck is happening, especially the way things played oh, yeah. out in the U.S. and the Western world. Yeah. How did that impact the work you do? And, and also, if you could talk a little bit about Guardian Self Defense, because I, I, you know, I follow you on social media, yeah. I see the work you do, and it's so important. I, I just love to understand a little bit more how that came about and the emphasis on it, why that came about even more so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this past May, I call it Digital Kristallnacht, okay? Mm. Kristallnacht was the night uh, where, is it called the Night of Broken Glass, where the Nazis said, that's it, let's destroy all Jewish businesses, and it was the start of the real bad times for uh, Jews and people in Germany there. Um, So it was a Digital Kristallnacht. It's been happening. The anti-Israel fervor has been there, but now people can express themselves in any which way they want, and they do it digitally. And there was just a massive tsunami of it. So it's not something that never heard before, we haven't heard before, but it was overwhelming numbers that people who are supportive of Israel, or even if they're not supportive of Israel and they started coming across this stuff, it felt like it was black or white, like Mm -hmm. And in and, and the issue when it comes to Israel, the Palestinians, and even, you know, the Christians that are living there in Lebanon, the Christians living in Bethlehem, everything, it's just, it is extremely nuanced. And yeah. the enemy, and I don't blame the people. I don't blame the Palestinian people. I have Palestinians who are good friends, okay? But it's the leadership. The leadership wants to keep people in a perpetual state of, of, uh, of disarray so they benefit they keep control that way and somehow this narrative has been able to be taken over by people with you know who are savvy at social media and are trying to tell history from like three quarters of the way through a movie like if you went yeah. to go see rocky 
All right, I'm going to age myself right now. But if you went to see Rocky and you walked in three quarters of the way through the movie, you're going to be like, that guy Rocky's a bully. He's <laughs> a bad man beating up Apollo Creed who's wearing those American shorts. That's a bad guy, right? <laughs> right. So that's what they're trying to do because they, the people who want to keep this narrative going, and it's much broader. I don't want to point fingers, but we kind of know who they are. The people who want to destroy Israel and everything that is freedom and loving over there. They've been trying to do it for a very long time. Let's pretty much say since 1948, because before that, there wasn't really a strong Jewish presence. There was always a Jewish presence, very small for thousands of years, even after the destruction of the second temple and the first temple. Very few. 1948, Israel's declared a nation. And that's when five Arab armies were sent to literally, quote unquote, push all the Jews into the sea. They wanted nothing but annihilation. Unbelievably, I mean miracle, they survived. A ragtag group of people with really no weapons, outnumbered, outgunned, outtanked, they won. They survived. I, st- I do think that's a miracle, okay? Yeah. Then there were a few other heavily armed conflicts, like army to army, tank division versus tank division, did not succeed, okay? 1967, 1973, Yom Kippur War, surprise attacks. They almost won. They almost did. After 1973, that's it. They could not win the massive army wars, like the old traditional army. Then it started switching over to what the greatest invention of the Palestinian leadership. Suicide bombing, attacks, uh, hijacking, airplanes. Um, They started going into doing what's called low-intensity conflict. And that continued on for years, trying to put pressure on the people. Then it became really the Antifada one, Antifada, Antifada two, of suicide bombing, shootings into homes, on the highways, things like that. And when they realized they couldn't get that done, they had to start working on something else. And that's changing public opinion. And that's the long ballgame. That's a very long ballgame. And they knew that the only country that will continue to support Israel, the only true ally for Israel, is the United States. So how do you change the opinion of 300 plus million people? Best place to go is, well, where do these people primarily get educated? College. Mm-hmm. So they started in colleges, getting countries to fund Middle Eastern departments, then putting in a chairman or professors into Middle East studies departments to start changing the way we think about these things. That's planting seeds. And they started doing that back in late 90s, early 2000s. Now you have where we are today, 2021, where seems like a majority of Middle Eastern studies departments are anti-Israel. It's now become this, look, I'll, I'll give them some credit. They, they have made it popular and kind of cool to be anti-Israel. Mm-hmm. Is it cool to be a Nazi? No, but to the people who were Nazis were like, yeah, man, they're cool. You know why? Because they had influence and power. Well, people are being duped now. People are being misled because uh, some famous model has more followers on Instagram than there are Jews in the world. And let me tell you, every Jew in the world, we have identity problems. We have trauma from the past centuries and what have happened. So every Jew, the, you know, the 15 million in the world, the six and a half million in the United States, we all don't see eye to eye on Israel. I think that's crazy, but it's part of my job to educate them. But again, it's all Americans. It's it's really the evangelical support for Israel that keeps Israel in place, you know, where she is. And uh, this is what the people who are anti-Israel are trying to do. They're trying to rip apart the best friendship of the United States and Israel. And it starts with us. And it really, I frankly, I think it, it starts in the home. I think a lot of parents haven't taught their children why it's important to care about Israel. Our connection as people to the land, to the history for thousands of years, if we're not teaching it just to our kids, then they're going to be filled. They're a bucket that will be filled by social media with misinformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Kasim, that's kind of his like, that's his heart. I think is just exposing the the different ways that people are being influenced by misinformation online, and um, we've talked a lot about it over the past few months. I mean, I. I I literally thank God for people like Kasim and a few others that are very unique, you know, in doing what we're doing. And 
it takes a lot for him to go through what he's gone through and to come out to the other side and not just say, okay, great, I'm going to live a peaceful life now that I've found this way to live it. I'm going to actually go back into it and, uh, you know, redo those things and see what's needed most. We need educators. We need leaders. We need people who are not afraid to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. The worst mm-hmm. thing about this environment, this political environment, this, I think we're really just basically in an informational revolution. And as humans, we don't know how to deal with all these messages from text messages, emails, billboards, electronic, this, that, the other, bombarded with it, that people are either A, afraid to speak out, B, they'll speak out but speak the wrong thing, or C, you know the right thing. We, you know, Kasim and I have a job to do, and you do as well, to, we have to educate the people who don't have the education and are quiet, but then we also combat the people who are totally misinformed. But to do that, it takes 10 times amount of energy. But the Mm -hmm. real value is in the work of going to people who are just on the sidelines. The vast majority, I'd say 80%, it's always like the 80-20 rule, 80% just don't know anything. And of the 20% that do know something or think they know something, 10 are on the far left, 10 are on the far right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to just talk to the people who need to be educated. And a lot of it, it's just by asking a simple question. This is the number one tactic we've done in Fuel for Truth, which is take one fact that you love and you know. It can be anything, but it has to be the one that you love. And you have to ask someone, a friend, and say, hey, did you know that Israel offered 98% of the land to Yasser Arafat in 2000, and it was turned down and met with an entire wave of suicide bombers? Did you know that? Because if you ask in a question format, it puts you on equal footing. It's not you're dictating, you're not demanding. You're sharing, hey, you know what? Did you know this? Or ask someone, hey, I don't know a lot about this. Can we talk about it? Look, it's important. It's an important conversation to have. It'll bring you closer. It won't cause a fight. If it does cause a fight, try and say, hey, I want to have a discussion about this. If they continue fighting, you know what? Spend your time with someone else. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good rule. (laughs) Something we say at Kufai all the time, it's the game isn't won by the fans in the stands. As much as we think we're winning the game, um, it's by the people on the field. And on a personal note, I'm really glad the one fact you said wasn't about cherry tomatoes. Like, <laughs> you know, I, if I hear that, did you know the cherry tomato was Israel? I'm like, please, no, guys, please. I, I can't with that. That, yeah. So I appreciate that. on a personal level. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. Now, I, I'm also oh, look. Something also, I say a little, a little a tip and trick I'll give you is. Be provocative. You got to be slightly provocative. No, never be rude. There's no reason ever to be rude, but be slightly provocative. And guess what? Today's day and age, being provocative could be just asking that question of like, do you know why Israel's national symbol is the candelabra instead of really the Jewish star? Oh, what the hell? What, what do you, what do you, I don't care about that. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, just go, go with anything comes up. But anyway, I wanted to get into talking a little bit about GSD, Guardian Self-Defense. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is the reason we started this program. So I started with the same founder of Fuel for Truth. So day one, you remember I told you that he called me and he was like, all right, bring one person to my office Monday night, seven o'clock and hung up on me. So it was a group of like, I think it was like 13, 14 guys there. And we all were like, no one's religious. No one's a Middle East scholar. We were all like, what are we doing here? And luckily, John Lowe laid out a plan and he said, okay, we're going to take a vote here. Either A, we should start a Jewish self-defense program because this issue of 9-11 is not going to be good for the Jews. We know our history. And then the other one is maybe we should educate people about our history because we don't even know about our history. So the self-defense group, you know, was said, maybe we'll get to that later because we didn't know the basic, we didn't even know why a Jew is called a Jew. That was the number one question. And it, it means a lot to a lot of people, but primarily it's a person who originally came from the tribe of Judah, which is in Judea, which still exists today, but people like to call it the West Bank. So there's always been a Jewish connection to the land get that fact out there. But fast forward, 2014, 
Israel fights a conflict against Hamas. Hamas launches thousands of rockets, unprovoked once again. And because of the network of hundreds, if not thousands, of young adults in Fuel for Truth, we were hearing a lot of anti-Semitic attacks, things that weren't getting reported to the police, things that were not being reported in the news, uh, a lot of intimidation, people being surrounded on a train because they saw someone wearing a Jewish necklace and said, saying to them, you're one of them, you're a baby killer. It's like this little girl, she's probably like four foot 11, surrounded by five people feeling like she's going to get beat up on the subway while she's riding the subway to work and because her ancestors came from this land and follows. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So that's when we decided to say, okay, we have to start that original plan of a self-defense group. And uh, what we did was uh, we would go to gyms, the Krav Maga gyms, because Krav Maga is the Israeli self-defense system. It is not a martial art. Basically, it is the fastest way to, uh, let's say, end a threat. Um, poking people in the eyes, poking, punching people in the throat, going for the groin, soft targets. You can't really practice this sport. I mean, we spar, but you have to be really careful with what you're doing. But we wanted to teach people these basics, all right? And we did it in a nine-month course for people. And the first uh, year we did it, we had 55 people join up. That was the largest, most amount of people we could fit in a room. Mm -hmm. That continues on today. But what I did in the past year and a half was um, I took what we've learned and I've now started a program that specifically focuses on the areas of religious Jews, like visibly religious Jews, the black hats, the beards, the tzitzis things that hang out around their waist. Why? Because in 2019, in December, there were 10 anti-Semitic attacks of violence in Brooklyn, New York, one after another every day. And I literally was reaching for my phone day after day saying, oh my God, it's going to be another one. And there was. And I couldn't stand that. Why aren't these people fighting back? And I went there on New Year's morning, nine o'clock in the morning. I met with four or five guys and I said, why do you guys keep getting attacked? They said, well, because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. And I said, do, do any of you have any self-defense training? They're like, no. I said, if I were to bring in a trainer and train you, can you bring together a friend? They're like, oh my God, we need this. Next is five days later, 45 guys in a room with beards, kippahs, and five Krav Maga trainers. And that was the start to what became GSD. It's called Guardian Self-Defense. And we are now in a year and a half in the most religious area in America. We've trained over 125 people. Every week we have a class, separate class for men, separate class for women, because that's how they train in you know, re religious respect. Um, and there's some really tough guys and girls now. So impressive. They totally didn't think they could you know, dribble basketball. Now they're punching. They're... And the thing that comes from the self-defense training, all right, my goal is not to teach everyone to be a ninja. The goal is if you go through training, you're facing your fears. By facing your fears, you grow confidence. When you walk with confidence, predators, these anti-Semitic fools that are attacking easy targets, these students of ours are no longer targets because we teach them, walk with your head up, walk with your shoulders back, carry yourself like you're ready and prepared, and that will be the game changer. And it has been. And from there, we're doing more training now in New York City because during May, when uh, the conflict happening in with Israel and Hamas, and you probably saw on TV, anti-Semitic attacks. They're beating up a Jew in the middle of Times Square for wearing a kippah. I mean, it was the most, and it's shocking how terrible and horrible it was because it happened there. The next day, it happened around the block. The next day in Los Angeles, the next day in Florida, day after day after day. And my goal and job is to bring this training that I've learned, that I train also, and bring my trainers to locations that do not have a Krav Maga gym or self-defense gym. And I'm now partnering with a fantastic organization called Stand Strong. And our goal is to bring this, like the Birthright program, you know, uh, to bring this to every community for free because it's our right to protect ourselves, but we just need a little bit of education to do it. And I've, you know, the way I do it from doing this over years, we do it in a fun, loving, positive environment. And people are coming out with swagger, 
People are saying, I'm doing better at work. I have more confidence to ask my boss for a raise. Hey, Joe, I asked this girl out. I'm, I never would have done that before. It's, it, it gives so much back, not just the God forbid, what do I do if I'm attacked kind of thing. Right. That's good. I love it. I, lo I invite anyone, if you're ever in New York, I'd love to meet you, invite you to a class anytime. I hope to do this everywhere. Uh, we're on we're on the road, you know, Chicago and Florida now, and uh, New Jersey starting soon. So we're getting there, but one day at a time. Nice. Well, um, what do you think, Kasim? We have to wrap it up? Yeah, I think that's a wrap. That's so what we have time for, I think. Is there anything you maybe want to share with our listeners kind of as a parting word? Uh, just, uh, again, I thank you guys and women and girls every day for all that you give, your blessings, your prayers to Israel, to the Jewish people. We need you. We need everyone. Don't think that someone else is doing the job for you. Everyone needs to be involved. Everyone needs to speak up. Everyone just needs to feel connected. And I, again, I believe the, the tactic and strategy is strengthen numbers. No need to run and argue with the person who disagrees with you on social media or at the post office. Turn to the person behind you and say, hey, I'd like you to join the team. I want, you to, I want to build an alliance with you. You know, we're all on the same team. Our enemy doesn't consider you on the bench or not. They think you're on the team. So Get on the team, practice yourself, ask someone for help. If you know what you're doing, help someone else. Thank you, Karina. And thank you, Kasim, my brother. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you for taking the time out, Shana Tova. And that ending is why I call you the Jewish David Goggins. That was perfect. That was literally the perfect soundbite. <laughs> so, love it. All right. I love it. Jared, thank you so much. Hopefully, we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, have an awesome got it. day. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye guys. All right. Well, that was Joe. And I don't know about you, but I think that was very good. I think he had a lot of positive things to say, things to nuggets to chew on, just very yeah, diverse that, guy with a lot of like a, a breadth of knowledge in different areas, you know? Yeah, it, it was excellent. And I appreciate him taking time out from, you know, it being Rosh Hashanah and his birthday a few days his ago. So, so yeah, so it's solid. Yeah, that was good. I liked how he kind of zoned in on something that we we also believe at Kufi, which is in reaching essentially people who are ignorant or apathetic and not, you know, spending all your time debating with people who have a different view, that small percentage of people instead trying to reach people who have no idea why Israel is important, why Christians should support Israel, etc. Right. No, that's so important because people do, they, they, you have so much energy debating people, and it's like, what are you, what are you achieving here? But it, I guess just with our culture on social media, people love those short, like, I'm debating someone. It's like, cool. You just wait oh, yeah. three minutes of your life. You're never going to get back. <laughs> yeah. 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 Facebook is the place to, to do that. Indeed. I've heard. <laughs> word word on right. the street. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've ever done it, obviously. So that was Joe, and we are going to go into a short message from Kufi before we get into our devotional. This Rosh Hashanah, get Christians United for Israel's custom art piece to remind you of your commitment to stand with Israel and the Jewish people. With your gift of any amount, add beauty to your home and remember God's gracious blessings in this new season with this one-of-a-kind artwork. Featuring the Shehekianu prayer, this 4x6 custom art piece made in Israel will bring a spirit of prayer and peace to your home. Don't wait. Visit kufi.org September to receive one today, yours with your gift of any amount. And we're back. Um, so we have our, what are we calling this now? Biblical, biblical encouragement. Biblical encouragement. All right. We have our biblical encouragement from our Kufi on-campus field coordinator, Cherith. Uh, Cherith's awesome. That's she all. Is. She really is. Um, so I will let her kind of take it from here. So Cherith, over to you. Hello, my name is Cherith Runyon, and I'm a coordinator with the CUFI on campus team. And I am bringing our devotional today from the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, which says, listen, stay alert, stand tall in the faith, be courageous and be strong. It is time to stand. 
This year marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, that devastating day when Al-Qaeda flew airplanes into the financial center of America, killing innocent Americans and trying to make our nation seem subdued. That was a dark day. But we stood together as one nation. Many went back to church, raised the flag, and saluted it. We were stronger. Today, we are facing another enemy. Not just terrorism, but a spiritual one. Apathy. Our country has fallen into complacency. We're trying to shut out the darkness in the world around us instead of shining a light to pierce it. And while this mindset might be understandable, it is not acceptable. During the days of the early church of Corinth, our Christian forefathers battled apathy. The allure of the world crept in, and many were tempted to let everything just go. Fighting over belief systems, doctrines, and other issues distracted them from what God had called them to. In 1 Corinthians, Paul encourages the believers to stand strong in the faith and take courage. Our battle is not done yet. And this is what I want to impart to you. In this day of darkness, fear, hardship, and loss, there's a strong temptation to throw away our calling, succumb to the pressures of the world, and just let it all pass by. But we must not allow this to happen. Right now, the church is being attacked. Israel has been targeted. Our pastors, godly mothers, fathers, students, teachers, and others are growing weary of doing good. My friends, remember our call to be of one mind, to follow God, and stand strong against the lies and attacks of the enemy. Israel needs our support. Our persecuted Christian family needs our support, and we cannot stay silent. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. God has blessed us with the knowledge of the truth and the ability to spread it. What a gift to be able to advocate in freedom and relative safety. We must continue to educate ourselves and empower others to stand up, stay strong, speak out, and fight back against the lies, apathy, and general sleepiness of our nation and fellow believers. And who knows? God may lead you to change the heart of just one person, and that person could change the world. So stand strong, fight the good fight of faith, speak out for Israel, and don't give up your calling in this time of darkness. For we know that our labor is never in vain in the Lord. God is with us. Stand up for what is right. Stand up for Israel. Stay encouraged and keep moving forward. All right. Well, I always appreciate hearing from Cherith. Cherith has just such a sweet, gracious spirit, and that just comes through in everything she says and everything she does. And I really appreciate that message. Yeah, that was really great. And, you know, uh, I second what you said about Cherith. She really has a sweet and very caring demeanor. She does. So that's our episode. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, like, subscribe, send it to your mom. And um... (laughs) that's a new one. That's a new one. I I was not expecting to send it to your mom. Moms moms share it with people. So if they send it to their mom, they were like exponentially multiplying our. our, That is smart marketing. Right? This is why you're a co host. Mm -hmm. There we go. Don't tell Ari. All right. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, do what Karina said. Thank you for joining us. Talk to you next time.